Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today you are in for a treat. My guest this week is a world record setter and a guy whose willpower I can't even begin to imagine. Daniel Burton is a bicycle fanatic from Eagle Mountain, Utah. He is the first person ever to reach the South Pole from the Antarctic coast entirely by bicycle. He set off in December of 2013 and finished on January 21st, 2014. It took over 750 miles, 1,200 kilometers to get there, along with climbs of over 9,000 feet. He faced bike breakdowns, gale force winds, total whiteouts, and he even ran out of food. He is one crazy guy and a heck of a storyteller. I am really excited to share this one. Here's his story. Five years ago, right now, you were cycling to the South Pole. How often do you feel like going back? Um, I, I probably will never make it back there. It, uh, <laughs> it's beyond my budget. It was beyond my budget the first time. And so, yeah, shortly after I I finished it, the first, at first, I, there's no way I was going to go back. It yeah. was just so hard and everything. But it didn't take more than a week or two before I started trying to plan a, another expedition to the, the South Pole. Actually, I was looking at trying to do a, um, from one edge of the continent to the other and uh, had a guy I was going to go with and I was talking to some sponsors. And, and I, I looked like it was going to happen. And then uh, my sponsor, uh, for some reason, just stopped talking to me and and then I kind of lost interest after that. <laughs> uh, that's that's more inclined than I thought you would be. I, I figure once uh, would be enough for any person. But uh, yeah, after after climbing up from uh, Hercules Inlet up into the interior, there there was a guy uh, Richard Park who was trying to set a record for uh, skiing, how fast he could ski from the coast to the South Pole, mm-hmm. and he had the weather had been too bad for him too much too much white out and stuff so he wasn't getting the time he needed so he headed back down and we crossed paths as he was headed down as i was headed up mm-hmm. and and as i'm heading up this thing and it was so hard and it's like what kind of idiot would ever do this twice i mean <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, yeah it, uh, <laughs> it was uh, hard enough that uh, at the time that you think no nobody would be dumb enough to do this twice right well let's start with the why we don't we don't have to get into the entire why perhaps just yet but i mean An- antarctica has got to be one of the harshest places possible i would think to ride over 750 miles yeah so why what compelled you to want to do it and so um, there's uh, I can't say the guy's name right, uh, Sir Ranulf Finnis or something like that. He said uh, those that ask the question will never understand the answer, hmm. and those that understand the answer will never ask the question. <laughs> that's that's probably the greatest answer for why. But it was just um, somebody had tried. Well, Eric Larson had tried it the the year before mm-hmm. and he made it a quarter of the way and then turned around and it was just as i started looking into it more and more it just became an obsession it was something that just uh overwhelmed me and and there was just no way i couldn't do it hmm. if that makes sense before we get too deep into the ride i would love to get some backstory on how you took up cycling because you used to be a computer programmer what led to getting on a bicycle yeah, so, you know, I probably, I mean, like anybody, I started riding bikes when I was a little kid and stuff mm-hmm. and, and, and rode bikes and stuff. But, um, yeah, I, as a computer programmer, I was sitting at a desk too much 
and uh, I got a little bit overweight and uh, I went in, they had a health fair and I went into the health fair and they, they drew some blood for a cholesterol test and, and then they tested my blood pressure and it's like, oh, hold it, that can't be right. And sit here and, and relax for a minute and we'll try it again. And then, oh, no, that still can't be right. And, and then finally I said, oh, nope, you got high blood pressure. And then when the cholesterol test came back, I had really bad cholesterol numbers and, and I, I panicked. I thought I was going to die. Mm. And so I had some guys that were that I worked with that were into mountain biking and I started mountain biking with them and, and, uh, it basically saved my life. It, it uh, fixed my cholesterol numbers and fixed my, uh, blood pressure and, and, uh, weight issues. What was your athletic background like prior to joining these guys in mountain biking? Uh, I've always liked going and doing stuff outdoors and, and stuff. So a lot of hiking and fishing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But as far as like an athlete, I was never really an athlete. In fact, like, in in school growing up you know how you get the teams together and you're, you're uh, picking uh, who's going to be on what team yeah yeah and, and i would always be the last guy to get picked i mean oh. I, i'd look at some <laughs> other guy and it's like no way they're going to pick that dweeb over me but they would so i guess that <laughs> tells you where where i sit on uh, sports <laughs> yeah but but mountain biking uh you you took two uh so what was the goal initially was it just was it just to be a bit more active getting fit so to speak yeah and and just going out and having fun you know i think the thing is is if you want to do something that's going to help you know change your lifestyles to be more active and and exercise and whatever you know i could say well i'm going to go to the gym and lift weights but for me that would be boring and I'd maybe do it for a week or two and, you know, New Year's resolution type thing, you know, people right now are probably, you know, flooding the gyms with uh, stuff. But in a couple of weeks, the gyms are going to be empty again because right. because it's just to me and I know some people like it, but for me, that's just boring. But uh, mountain biking was something that was fun. I, I got to get out and, and really enjoy and have fun doing it. And so so I think if you want to do an exercise that is going to make a difference in your life, it's got to be something you enjoy. Mm-hmm. So it's so a bit more context on your backstory. And granted, this comes from Wikipedia. So uh, reliability of you know the internet being what it is. Well, but I kind of <laughs> so born in Oregon and then moved to Utah later. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I was born in Oregon. I was like about three months old yep. when uh, my family moved to Alaska. Okay. And, and we lived in Alaska for three years and mm-hmm. then moved to uh, Utah. So, you know, I was only three years old when we moved to Utah. So I don't remember much before that. Right. So for all intents and purposes, I mean, Utah has been your home and, and continues to be home. Yeah. Y- yeah. For the time being, but I'm hoping to, uh, move somewhere warmer. Uh, <laughs> so growing up uh, and um, as you're taking to uh, riding a bicycle with your, your co-workers is in Utah, when do you go from, uh, you know, making the switch to wanting to be a bit more active on a bike to then actually jumping off the deep end, so to speak, and saying, I'm going to open up a bike shop and kind of becoming your life? Yeah, I think, so my wife says I'm like uh, Mr. Toby in The Wind in the Willows. I get uh, things and I just get obsessed and, and kind of overdo it. And so I just really, I mean, we were going mountain biking every day and, and stuff. And then eventually I worked for Novell and they decided to take all the work that uh, my department was doing and move it to India. Mm-hmm. And so they laid off the whole department. And at that point it's like, you know, I, I just didn't want to uh, continue doing that at that point. I, I thought, well, if I could give the benefits I got from mountain biking to other people, 
that would be awesome. And so I opened up a bike shop and, and, uh, did what I could to try to help other people get out and be active. So there's this race, uh, that takes place in Utah and Wyoming, the Logan to Jackson classic, the Lotoja or how, how is it? Um, uh, I always say Lotoja, but people Lodija. say it a lot of yeah. different ways. When do you decide to first take that on? And one of the guys that uh, worked said, hey, we should do this. And it was actually kind of funny because the year that he said to do that was like probably the worst year they ever had. Um, <laughs> and so so I, I didn't get in that that year. But uh, it, they got uh, a really bad snowstorm that hit them. And, and uh, I think well more than half of the people got pulled off and a lot of them in uh, ambulances being pulled out for hypothermia because of the conditions and stuff. So it was, oh, wow. ended up being a really, really bad year. And I started doing it the year after that. And it was just something, um, you know, a friend said, hey, let's let's do this. And But actually, um, the one that was worse than that, there was uh, a race that they called uh, the Brinehead Epic. Uh-huh. And uh, the Brinehead Epic was a 100-mile um, mountain bike race. And uh, the famous 100-mile mountain bike race that uh, everybody knows about is the Leadville. But uh, the people that I know that have done both Leadville and uh, the Brinehead Epic say the Brinehead Epic is much more difficult than than Leadville. But yeah, I mean, it, so we just got into doing these uh, massively long, crazily difficult uh, rides. What was it about uh, any of those rides that appealed to you and uh, and made you want to take on more well and so they're they're kind of they're officially races but i i'm not like like we said before i'm not the athlete you know the competitive athlete really and so for me it wasn't about trying to win a race or anything it was just and i think a lot of people doing the same thing it's about trying to see can i actually do this is this is this something i can overcome and accomplish and so so it's really just you know here's this uh, amazingly difficult challenge can i step up and do it. Hmm. So you do this one ride, the Lodija, not once, but six times. And, uh, and, and you'd already mentioned a name before, uh, Eric Larson. So before your, your big ride, there was this other American adventurer. Can you give some context, if you will, to who he is and how he got the wheels turning in your head? Yeah, Eric Larson's actually a really uh, amazing guy. He is really into winter. <laughs> I, I follow him on Facebook, and and he always has this uh, countdown to days till winter starts and and stuff. And and crazy that he likes the cold so much. But uh, he was the first person to go to the North Pole, the South Pole, and the top of Mount Everest all within a year's time frame. Right. So he's quite quite an amazing adventure. But he also really liked uh, um, mountain biking. And so he decided to take his love of biking and his love of uh, polar ex- exploration and uh, combine them and see if he could uh, ride a bike to the South Pole. And the thing is, before he did it, it really there really wasn't uh, a bike that was capable of doing it. There, there was a, another guy who had tried to build a bike to do Antarctic uh, um, stuff, but it, it, I don't think it really worked that well. But just about the time that Eric did it, um, fat bikes really started taking off, and they, they started mm-hmm. having um, bikes that had five-inch wide tires. And, and, and before that, you know, maybe three or four-inch wide tires were as wide as they got, but the, they just kept getting wider and wider every year until they got to that five-inch five wide tires. And that's when you actually had a bike that was actually capable of really working in Antarctica. 
So what does training look like as you prepare for something like this? Like what are the sorts of things that you have to be ready and conditioned for? Yeah, so I think for me the training was really Lodija and Brian had epic. Those, I mean, Lance Armstrong I think said once the best training you can do for the Tour de France is the Tour de France. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I think, you know, it's kind of that thing that my, my real training wasn't really that I was training for Antarctica. It was just what I was doing. And so those those big all-day, you know, epic uh, bike rides were what got me in the ability to be able to do something where I would go out and do it all day long. And then in, in, in our case of Antarctica, all day long, every day for, you know, for practically two months. But uh, it's funny because you see a lot of people that are training to do expeditions to uh, the South Pole, usually on skis. And so they'll take and they'll hook a couple big, big tires to the to a rope and and pull, you know, walk along pulling that those big right. tires behind them as a thing and and I thought oh, that's just you know cool and whatever and and makes good good uh pictures to to show and everything but yeah. how practical is that really and then when I got to Antarctica and I started trying to climb up those hills it all made sense that <laughs> <laughs> I I could see where taking some big heavy tires that you could just barely pull with a bike and trying to pull those around with a bike would be good training. Yeah, yeah. Now, before you before you get to Antarctica, are you doing rides like in the cold to prepare for this? I mean, how much can you replicate uh, without actually being there? Yeah, the you know, if you had the money and time and ability to do it, yeah, you'd probably want to go up to like the Arctic and 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 play some you know up in Upper Alaska or mm-hmm. Canada or somewhere and and uh, do some um, riding up in there and kind of get used to uh, that. Um, in Utah, we have uh, we, we get a lot of snow in the winter in the mountains. And so going up in, in the mountains and, and riding the snow bike up there, you know, riding in the snow is actually pretty good training for, for what it was like. And when before I went riding in the snow, the fat bikes really hadn't taken off yet. They were there, but they hadn't taken off. So I'd go up uh, and ride in the in the snow up in the mountains and the track, the trails just weren't packed at all and stuff. And so it was a lot of hard work and, uh, uh, very difficult. And so that was good. Now you go up and, and those same trails get pretty well packed and, and, it, and it's a blast. But, uh, yeah, the, the problem I had to some extent was I decided to do this like, uh, probably like February time frame. Yeah. And and so that's like, you know, the snow's kind of toward the end of the snow season and, and I was riding, running a bike shop. And so I'm in a bike shop, you know, working 10 to 15 hours a day, six days a week in the bike shop. So I really didn't have <laughs> a lot of time to get out and do anything special to train. It was mostly just my normal riding. I ride my bike to and from work uh, every day. And, uh, and so one of the big thing I did that was different to get ready for Antarctica is I switched from riding a mountain bike or a road bike, uh, to only riding my uh, fat bike. Yeah. And so fat bikes, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the trade-off basically is, I mean, you're trading speed for, you know, much wider surface for traction and to be able to do that kind of terrain that you'd need to do in say Antarctica. Is that, is that the gist of it? Yeah. And basically what you really, what you're looking for is float. 
So you want those tires to float up on top of the snow mm. instead of sinking down in. And so the bigger, wider that tire is, the you can, better you can do that. Just like the difference between, you know, walking and using uh, cross-country skis. You put in that, your area out on a, a bigger area so that floats you back up on top of the snow to where you can travel better. Right, right. Or s- snowshoes, the same thing, I would imagine, too. Yeah. Right, right. So... As you're preparing for this, and as you'd seen Eric Larson and heard about him, I mean, there was still this uh, world first or this world record on the table uh, to be the first one to do it uh, by bicycle. I mean, how much was that spurring on your timetable of wanting to do it before that, that you know, opportunity disappeared? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so Eric had done it, uh, I guess it would have been the year, the 2012-2013 mm-hmm. um, time frame, and so... Yeah, I figured if I was going to do this, I had to do it immediately. I didn't have time to try to say, well, let's let's do some expeditions. Let's do some other things to get ready to do this. Uh, I knew that somebody was going to do it uh, pretty soon. And so so I uh, started working on it. And I one of the mistakes, well, I don't know if completely a mistake, but one of the things I did is I I uh, was very public about what I was going to do. I, I announced what I was going to do and stuff. And the reason I did that was I was trying to get sponsorship. Sure, it didn't work. Yeah. It didn't work. So that's maybe why it was a mistake. But but I was trying to trying to get sponsorship um, to do this. And by being public about it, that meant uh, that a couple other people that were also working towards it uh, sped up their um, time frame mm-hmm. and to try to get there at the same time. Right. So the, yeah, that's the, the the trade-off, I guess, for trying to get that sponsorship is uh, you're letting the cat out of the bag, so to speak, and you've got you're tipping your competition off to uh, to what you're yep. about to do. Yeah. Uh, how how in line with uh, your personality was it to do something like this? I mean, to the people that that know you best, how much of a surprise was it to them to hear that you're planning on going off to Antarctica? I think uh, they. Didn't I don't think they were actually that surprised. I'm just kind of a um, yeah. <laughs> I, I I like. I mean, I've always liked going on long hikes and stuff like that. And so it's not not really out of character for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have, you know, pretty much everybody. I had a lot of people tell me I shouldn't do it, <laughs> and a lot of people thinking that uh, you know when they would say goodbye to me in November when I left that uh, that would be the last time they would see me. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were pretty convinced I would kill myself doing it. Mm. Probably a, a whole other demographic of people too that probably told you after the fact once you completed it that, that they thought that uh, you had no chance until you made it back safe too. I would think. Yeah, yeah. There, pretty much, pretty much everyone figured I, that there was no way I would be able to make it. Except my wife says she thinks I. She thought I could make it. She mm-hmm. she knew me well enough to know that uh, I would do whatever it took and and the thing is is i mean it sounds extremely dangerous but there were a lot of things in place that made it made the dangers relatively i mean you know it wasn't as as dangerous as a lot of people thought there are some real dangers yeah but uh but before i left uh i just had that that inner feeling that yes this uh, things are going to be work work out okay i'm you know that this this isn't going to kill me. Yeah. So uh, let's go through a bit of that. What what were the dangers, and how did you uh, try to mitigate the the potential risk that you were going to be facing? Well, so it's kind of interesting. The um, dangers that everybody would uh, 
immediately recognize are that there are crevasses. Uh-huh. And so, so the snow's moving at different speeds and, and it cracks open and you get a big crack and you, and then what happens is the, the wind's blowing the snow and the snow will blow over the top of that crevasse and, and build a snow bridge over it. Mm-hmm. And so you have a, a, a crevasse, but you can't see that it's there. You step on the snow, it collapses out from under you and you fall into a crevasse and, and nobody ever sees you again. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's the big big danger that everybody thinks about or the fact that it's it's 40 below and you're camping out in in the 40 below and and you're gonna freeze to death and and a lot of the problem with that is uh you know you're working hard and so you get all sweaty and then if the sweat freezes hypothermia and hypothermia kills you and so that's probably the things that people think about um the thing that probably came closest to killing myself is i got the hiccups and I, I was eating dinner and I got the hiccups and I kept eating anyway and uh, got some food caught in my throat and I just about choked to death and uh, there was nobody around to help me. And, and so, you know, trying to get that food out of my throat and that, that was, that was probably the closest I came to killing myself, except for maybe, um, there was a guy a couple years ago that was trying to go from coast to coast, um, with no, um, he was doing it solo, no, no resupplies or anything. And he worked and he got, uh, he got to the South pole and then was continuing out the other way. And, and he, uh, basically got to where he couldn't go forward anymore. They flew in, picked him up and, uh, and said, Oh man, he's in bad shape. Flew him out to Chile, put him in the hospital and he died the next day. Wow. And, and so I look at I look at how much work because you know I was following his expedition and I'm looking at how much work he was doing every day, and and his whole thing and and he and I were pretty much on the same course as far as the amount of work we were doing, the amount of weight we were losing, the the whole overall condition. I went 51 days, he made it 71 days before he had to be pulled out, and so I figure. Um, looking at it realistically, I was probably about 21 days from killing myself. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. And so that was, that was very sobering to me because it's like, I, I know, I mean, I had one of the days where I was, you know, at the end of the day, I was just totally maxing out what I could do. And, and at the end of the day, I'm just, I just collapsed on my bike. I, I had to, I had to lay there on the snow and recover for quite a while before I could, I could continue to, uh, set up a tent and get get in there so i was pushing my body to absolutely to the max what what does a a typical day what did a typical day look like for you as you were doing this trek i mean uh, the time you're waking up to the the, how long you're on the bike to the packing up and uh, and setting up camp for the night yeah so um it varied a little bit depending on what i was trying to do um, cause I tried a lot of different things, but basically, I mean, it, it's 24 hours of daylight, so I could go anytime I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of, t- there were times I started like at one o'clock in the morning or, or 12 o'clock in the morning. And, and really time is kind of a relatively th- thing there. You get to pick which time zone you want to use. Mm-hmm. I just use the Chilean time zone because the, the satellite phone support I had was, uh, out of Chile. Well, they're they're using the Chilean time. So anyway, that was the time time frame I was using. So, but you could go, you know, I could go any time I wanted. And but usually that what that meant would I'd wake up around four or five o'clock in the morning, 
and uh, get some breakfast, boil up some water. So I just scoop up uh, ice. It, my tent was like a double tent. And so I had an inner tent and an outer tent and the outer tent had no floor. And so I could open up the, the door to the inner tent and scoop up snow that was inside my tent mm-hmm. and, and put it in a, a stove, boiled some water. I boiled the water, um, make breakfast and, and then start getting everything packed up. Um, once I got everything packed up, uh, put, put it into the sled. The last thing obviously would be my, my tent, push the sleds out of my tent. And, um, and then I would, uh, pack the tent into my sled. And then actually the very last thing I would do is I had a, a really nice, big, warm parka that was absolutely way too warm to be able to bike with. And I would take that parka off and stick it in, in the sled the very last thing and then i'd start riding and and usually i'd ride i tried a bunch of things but this towards the end the routine that was really working is i'd basically start riding there and i would i would go for about 13 hours riding taking a i'd, I'd stop like every hour or so wow. usually once an hour i'd stop i'd get off the bike i'd i'd drink some hot chocolate um throw in some uh some some energy food into my in my mouth uh and get back on the bike and start going. And so the thing was, is the amount of effort it took to, uh, to keep a bike upright because I mean, you got to go at least, you know, a mile and a half, two miles an hour to keep from tipping over. Uh And so (laughs) that doesn't seem very fast, but it was so hard. The effort to do that, I would often get, just get drenched in sweat. And, uh, that, like I said before, is very dangerous. And so, in order to keep from freezing to death, I basically had to keep that, that kind of effort up all day long. And I couldn't take much of a break because if I did, then, you know, if I was going to take very much long of a break, I would have had to set up my tent and get inside the tent to keep from freezing to death. And so, and so it was pretty much an all day, 13 hours, take uh, taking short breaks to get some food and water in. And then at the end of the day, um, the very first thing you do, I do when I stop is put the, put the, um, park it back on it was always windy and so as soon as you pull that tent out the wind's going to try to rip that tent and and you know lose your tent and 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 game over and so so the setup you know i clip it to the bike sometimes it dragged the bike around along the snow until i could get it things staked down and and then and so then once i got the tent set up then kind of the i would uh um, get some food again, boil some water to make some food for, for the evening. I had to uh, call in to, uh, ALE, the, the company that was, uh, um, monitoring my po- progress and everything. I'd call them yeah. and tell them where I was, how long I had gone, how far I had gone and everything. And that was kind of a, a safety thing. If I went 48 hours without calling them, then they would send out uh, um, somebody to come find my frozen body and haul me back to uh, back to uh, civilization. <laughs> so, so it was kind of an important thing uh, every evening to make sure I got that uh, phone call out to uh, let them know that I was still okay. Yeah, yeah. The wind. Uh, I mean, I, I figured I, initially I would have figured that you the benefit of having twenty four hour daylight is you can pick and choose the spots when it would be less windy. But if you're going for thirteen hours at a time, I mean, you're 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 kind of exposed to that regardless. Uh, how relentless was the wind throughout your 51 days? Well, so generally the problem problem for going any expedition that wants to go to the South Pole is the South Pole's at 9,300 um, feet elevation, so it's pretty high. 
And obviously, it's very cold at the South Pole, and, and cold air is much heavier than warm air. Mm. And so what happens is that cold air at the South Pole falls from the South Pole down towards the coast. And so that means, and they, they, it's called catabatic winds. So that means basically you have this catabatic wind that you are fighting against almost all the time. The only time that uh, that would you'd get relief from that was if you had a good storm out at the ocean that would kind of push its way in. And so if you had a storm that would push its way in, then it would that it would kill the wind, and so the wind would die. But then you would get a whiteout condition where where the sun is all obscured from the from the clouds and so everything is white there there's nothing but white and without any shadows or anything you can't see anything it, uh. it's been described as being like being in this on the inside of a ping pong ball and so so there's absolutely nothing you can see except white and and you can't tell the the terrain at all and so like one time i was setting up my tent and there was this snow drift next to where my tent was and i tripped over that snow drift a dozen times setting up my tent because i couldn't see it and and so it became was very dangerous for uh, biking because the the snow um, blows and drifts into uh, big snow drifts and then the sun comes out and it hardens up parts of that snow drift and then the wind comes in again and and tears away part of that and makes the, what they call sastrugi and so you get these these uh formations in the snow that just have these huge drops in them uh-huh. and so when you're biking and you cannot see those even though they're right under your wheels you can't see it and so i'd fall off these uh sastrugi at times and not even know they're coming until i'm just about to fall off them and and so the whiteouts were Probably, you know, even when the wind wasn't there, <laughs> it was just as difficult as, as uh, I, I don't know which was worse, trying to head into a 30 mile an hour headwind or not being able to see what you're doing and, and uh, having a really hard time navigating and, and continuing to move forward. It was, I mean, <laughs> reality is, is Antarctica is just harder than you can possibly imagine. Right. It's a pick your poison scenario, I guess. So, so as yeah. you're as you're about to fall into one of these sastrugi, like it, I would imagine it's the same sensation you might feel as if a uh, crevasse is opening up. Uh, is that is that going through your mind each time that you're about to kind of tip over into one of these drops? You don't know how long it's going to be. Um, no, usually. So most of the sastrugi I was dropping off were usually the bad ones were probably about four to six feet drops, uh-huh. and and so. Um, yeah, they, they, I didn't think they were crevasses. I okay. did actually, <laughs> I went over something that was either a really deep dug uh, uh, wind sastrugi um, type uh, thing or a crevasse. I'm not sure which w- it was. I, I went over the snow bridge that went over this kind of deep trough that, uh, you know, blew down as far as you could see. And and that was a little bit spooky because I didn't realize I was going over that till I was on the other side. Um, but yeah, the, we, before I, before I left, uh, we did a lot of, uh, looking at the route and they have uh, ground penetrating radar from satellite and from other methods to, uh, that they used to map out the area. So they had a pretty good idea where most of the dangerous, uh, uh, most dangerous crevasses are. Yeah. And so my route was designed to avoid the crevasses. How are you orientating yourself this time? Are you are you guided by GPS of some sort? 
Yeah, and so the GPS works fine there, and actually um, the compasses work pretty good down there too. The uh, the south magnetic south pole is actually um, in the ocean north of further north than where I started. Yeah, but on the other side of the continent from where I started, and so the the compass the south end of the needle pointed basically south but the the gps you could i take my gps and it would say okay this is the heading to get to my next waypoint and then i could use the compass to uh, go that direction but the the reality is there are a lot of people doing expeditions there have been a lot of expeditions back and forth to the south pole mm-hmm. and so there were a lot most of the time i could follow the the tracks from from skiing or from there are some vehicles that had driven back and forth so i could follow those tracks and and use that to navigate by but in a whiteout i wasn't able to see those and so i had to stare at the compass and if i didn't keep really close watch on the compass it didn't take very long at all before i looked down at the compass and i'm headed north <laughs> and so so you had to it, it, it was very difficult to, you you have to keep a really close watch on the compass which is really uh tedious uh when you're when you're in those whiteout conditions uh-huh so you have three different caches planted ahead of you to to resupply on this bike trip what's in the caches and and how do you plan to find them i guess they they have coordinates somewhere that you're going to look for yeah so i had three they were food caches so so in the cache would be a resupply of food and uh fuel to uh run my stove and so I had three of those uh, basically planted one quarter of the way, half the way, and then uh, three quarters of the way. And the way that worked would basically be they, they would fly into where we had decided the cache would be. They would fly into that location, land on the ice, and and uh, dig a hole, put my my uh, resupply in there and bury it, and then put a blue, black flag on it, and then note the location of where – because where they can land – is you know that they've got to look for a spot where the ice is um smooth enough that they can actually land so they'd land somewhere close to where where the the idea where we wanted it and so they land uh give me the gps coordinates and then basically say here go play geocaching for life (laughs) and and so again i i'd use my uh, gps to do that i had two gps's i brought with me in case something happened to one i had a backup right yeah um tell me a bit more about your nutrition throughout this uh throughout this expedition like how how much food do you have to be eating how many calories in order to complete something like this so i don't think you can physically i don't think the body can absorb as many calories in a day as what you're what it takes to do this. So my plan was to uh, eat about uh, 7000 calories a day mm-hmm. and that's what i had calculated out uh, the problem is, is I just couldn't eat that much food. And so the, the best is calorie density is, uh, like in oil or fat and stuff. And, and so maybe I probably should have had more, more, I had butter that I was using to add calories to the food that I was eating, but, uh, I probably should have had more of that, but, but it was, it was hard to eat enough calories. I think too, when you're working that hard, anybody that's worked that hard for, for that long knows that it takes a little while before you can really start eating again and get that food back in. So it was, it was really hard to get enough uh, food in. And by the time I got done, I was, I was 
extremely skinny. I looked uh, like something from, you know, some starvation camp. I, I, I looked terrible. And so I had freeze-dried food that I was uh, um, adding food, uh, adding water to to eat. That was my main supply of, of food. And then the, the butter that I was adding to it, I had a lot of just kind of food that I could just grab by my hand and, and eat. So I had um, some sports beans that are like a jelly bellies uh, of beans that are designed for for uh, endurance athletics. Um, I had uh, these honey stinger waffles that are really great. And so I, I had that and I had some freeze dried uh, fruits and pretty much that was what I was eating all day while I was riding. So I just grabbed some of that and throw it in my mouth and eat it and then continue on. And and that worked really well. I did try to have some, some uh, beef stew that I, I could drink while I was going, but I just, it just didn't um, work well for me for the beef stew. So, so I, uh, only tried that the first few days and I gave up on that and, and was just eating the other food while I was going. But yeah, I, I mean, I, um, it's, it's really hard to get enough nutrition because 7,000, I was easily burning more than 7,000 calories a day and, and trying to eat that many calories a day. And, and I just couldn't get the calories down. Were there things that you were that you were craving more than others or was there food that you brought along that was more, more prized than other things? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I didn't bring along, um, chocolate bars. Uh-huh. And I think that's a pretty common thing for people to use is, is some chocolate and, and, uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's nice, uh, a nice good chalk bar of chocolate or, the thing I really wanted uh, was a nice soft cookie, you know, that you could dip in some milk and some milk and cookies would have been awesome. But of course, you know, there, <laughs> first of all, you couldn't have a soft cookie. It would be frozen hard. Um, and, <laughs> and even if you did, there's no way I was going to have milk. So, <laughs> yeah. So you were by yourself. You've already mentioned, uh, this is a solo expedition throughout the course of these 51 days, just how, how much contact at all, like how many how many times did you actually physically see another person in your peripheral sight at any time? So there was I, I said I, I ran across uh, Richard Park who was he was headed the opposite direction, so we crossed paths. Um, there was another guy who was uh, he was originally intending to uh, also bike to the South Pole, but he pretty much skied the whole direction and he passed me on the second or third day that I was out. I would, I used up all the, I had brought some duct tape with me and I had used all that up. And so I was every day I was, when I was called calling into ALE, I talking to them and I said, you know, I I'm out of uh, duct tape. It'd be cool if I could get some more duct tape. And they were actually, um, running, uh, taking some more fuel out to the halfway place where they refuel planes. And so they, I woke up as I woke up one morning, uh, um, some guy knocking on, on my tent and, and, uh, this arm reaches in and hands me, a uh, some duct tape. And so I saw, <laughs> saw that guy's arm. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then when I got to the halfway point, there were a couple there, they've got a place where they refuel the planes. And so that I, when I was stopped there, I was able to see somebody working on, there was a guy that was working on um, clearing the runway that they were using to land planes. I saw him and there was a couple other expeditions coming and going through there that I saw, you know, like three or four people there. And then on the last day in in my attempts to try to keep my load light, I had sent a back, I, I took a lot of food that I didn't think I need 
needed at the halfway point. I, I left it there because they could fly it back to the beginning. So I left a whole bunch of food there. And so, and then I was very uh, kind of embarrassing, but I was very wasteful with how I was using my food to try to get rid of it to make it uh, very light. Uh-huh. And so I, I ran out of food um, a day before I, the day before I got to the South Pole. I was completely 100% out of food. And so they had somebody from the South Pole that, uh, from ALE, came down on a, on a snowmobile. Um, it was like uh, 24 mile-ish, 20, somewhere, somewhere around 20 miles from the end that uh, she came down on a snowmobile and, uh, and gave me uh, a, a new supply of food to be able to finish that last little bit. And, uh, and I'm not a big hugger. I, uh-huh. I don't. I don't hug people much, but, uh, but this, this lady gave me a, a, a good hug and, and that that's the best hug probably anybody's ever gotten in, in Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how does your fare with, uh, being alone for such long spans of time? What was it like? Um, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Um, I know that that's a, a real hard thing mentally to be alone for that long. It, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Maybe I'm just weird that way. Um, <laughs> I did though, I did miss my family. Um, and so that, you know, there were times it, it's weird because you'd get uh, real emotional. I, I'm not, I don't cry a, a lot, but it was like, uh, I'd get really emotional and I could, I could cry about things quite easily, but really I, I think I did okay with being alone for that long. It, it was kind of a cool time, a time that I was, able to uh, spend some time getting closer to God. And so for me, it was a lot of time to reflect and just think and, and kind of contemplate what you've done and, and where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the duct tape aspect, was that the handiest tool to have on, on the road with you? Yeah, so a, a good uh, farmer can fix anything with duct tape and uh, bailing wire, right? Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, yeah, I had I had a little uh, uh, multi-tool that I bought at Cabela's that ended up being extremely useful. Um, the duct tape, I, I used the duct tape to try to uh, improve the um, wind protection I had for my hands to uh, keep the wind off my hands. I had some, uh, some guards on my handlebars that would protect me from the wind, but they weren't really... In clo- closed off very well, and I thought that that was good because then they would get s- snow packed in them. But it also meant the snow could, the wind could work around. So I kind of built up a, a thing around those, made them a little bit more windproof. Mm. Um, the and and different things. I tried to. I, I didn't have a good way of holding a compass in front of me to to uh, keep on track. And so I tried building things with uh, sticks and duct tape and stuff to try to <laughs> try to get that compass <laughs> out in front of me on on the bike so I could keep going in the right direction during a whiteout. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> a lot of weird things you can use duct tape for. What What was the throughout your time the hardest part of making it to the South Pole, or the time where you were most filled with doubt, perhaps that uh, that you were going to accomplish it? Well, so a couple of things. One, the very first part of the trip, the first 
it seems like it was forever, but uh, when I go back and look at the journal and stuff, it was not as many days as it seems like. But, but, okay. but I just wasn't getting the number of miles that was necessary. I was getting some days as little as, you know, three or four miles a day, maybe mm-hmm. even two miles a day. Five, you know, my, my average was probably about five miles a day for the first it seemed like forever. Seemed it seemed like it was a couple of weeks, but it was probably less than that. But uh, and and so as I started figuring it out, I'm get I got into the interior, and and it was just obvious that at five miles a day, there was absolutely. I mean, it's you know 750 miles. I'm not. It's going to take well over 100 days to get uh, to get there, and and I only have around 50 ish days to uh, do it. So it's like obvious that I wasn't going to make it. So that was very discouraging, and and to think you know. Uh, yeah, it would be nice to be successful at least at something, and and I can right. see that it's going to fail, and so that that was pretty, pretty uh, discouraging. But I had uh, in, in the thing that I really had done to train for going to Antarctica was really more of a mental training, an idea that I was going to keep going and I was going to do this no matter what, and so I. At that point, I realized I wasn't going to make it to the South Pole. I told my wife I wasn't going to make it to the South Pole, you know, on on, on the satellite phone. And but I said, you know, I want to keep going and, and see how far I can get. Mm. And and so then it was like, and uh, and pretty much from then on, I, I averaged at least, you know, my average was probably even higher than that. But I was getting about 15 miles a day after that, which was enough to make it. And so. So it was like just at that point when I knew I wasn't going to fail, the very next day, everything opened up and started working. But uh, the other thing that was really difficult for me was uh, my rear hub broke. Um, I was just putting way too much work into that rear hub and and the free wheel, and it broke so that you pedal and and the gears spin, but the wheel doesn't turn. And and so I had uh, brought some wire with me thinking that if something went wrong with that whole thing, I could wire the, the gears to the spokes. And so I did that, and that worked for a little while, but then eventually it pulled the gears crooked, mm. and then the chain would drop into the spokes or drop into lower gears, and, and it wouldn't work anymore. So I, I cleaned that up because I had originally done that out in the snow in, in, in the ice, and so I'm just trying to do it the easiest way I could do and get going again, which was take this uh, long derailleur wire, and I, I weaved it around through the spokes and the and the spoke and the gears and, and did that. Now, it worked, but the problem is then as it tightened up, that would make it pull crooked. And so then after it, that was no longer rideable, I took it back in the tent, and I and I pulled that apart, and, and all the guts to the to that hub just fell out into the bottom of my tent. And it's like, oh man, there's no, I, I, I can put this together, but there's no way it's going to hold in the right place. There's no way this is going to work. And so I wired it together, said a prayer, and and uh, and amazingly, it worked. <laughs> it was like this this miracle that it, it kept working. And so I was able to go um, a while longer on that. And but the wires. I had brought with me were too thin of wire, and and the, again I was putting so much work into into that uh, thing, trying to you know the the amount of work that took to pedal to make the bike go forward was so hard that that it just sheared off all those wires I'd put. I was losing spokes, I was breaking spokes with it, and 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 uh, eventually cut off all those wires broke off, and and I was gone, and so I was out of wire, and it's like, um. I'm done for. I, I actually had another wheel they were going to send down to me, 
but it was, you know, it was, it was a long ways away to get to my next cache where this replacement wheel was going to be. Mm. And, and I thought, well, I'm done. I'm going to have to walk the rest of the way to get there, which kind of like at this point, does that still make it a biking expedition? So I was pretty discouraged about that. And I thought, you know, here's your, here's my opportunity. I could call up on my satellite phone and say, beam me out, Scotty. And, you know, I call him up and say, I'm done. I, and, right. and I, and I could go home and say, I didn't fail. I had an equipment failure. It wasn't my fault. But again, I had decided before I left that I wasn't going to do that thing. So in less time than it took to think about the fact that I could get out of here, I already decided that I'm not going to do that. And, and I remembered that in my parka, there was this wire in the hood of my parka, which formed the hood around making the, the fur on, the, on that hood in a good hold in a good spot to you know keep the fur in in the right spot and not in your face and i remembered that there was a wire in there and i and i'd actually in my parka and also in the jacket i was wearing every day they both had wires in the hood and so i could steal those wires and then i also thought about that there was these wires in the in the windows of my tent that formed the shape of the windows and it's like oh i can steal those so i took and i raided these wires out of the tent and out of my hood and rewired it again and was able to uh, make that work until i got to uh to my last cash where they had uh, put a new replacement wheel in for me and so so that that was that was the other i guess kind of discouraging thing but but i i worked was able to work through it incredible what about the most meaningful or beautiful part of the expedition? So probably the two, uh, Antarctica is amazingly beautiful. There, there was a guy who w wanted to do this expedition and he was talking on, you know, on my uh, attempts to try to get uh, the sponsorship. I was talking on the internet about stuff and, and he had commented about the fact that he had also thought about uh, going to and doing this, but after a while he decided, you know, it's nothing but this blank white stuff and, and uh, it would be very boring. And, and he was so wrong. The uh, Antarctica is amazing. The, the way the wind sculpts the snow is just awesome. And the sun glistening off of the snow and it is just beautiful. And then they, they have this on, it's kind of a, a bad sign when this happens, but when you get a little bit of moisture in the air, it's so cold that it just is ice. And so these crystals of ice, um, the way they float in the air makes it so when the sun hits it, you get this, this rainbow that it actually ends up being a full circle around the sun. It's just a beautiful rainbow around the sun. Mm -hmm. And then out a little ways, a, a second rainbow around. And then there's this really cool halo that would just circle around the sky um, perpendicular to those rainbows and so then where that halo would intersect with the with the rainbows it would create what they call sun dogs and so it looked like there was a second and a third a fourth fifth it looked like all these extra suns in the sky and it's just the a most i tried to get some pictures of it and my pictures suck <laughs> it is so beautiful it, it was amazing but then one of the most beautiful amazing things i saw after 50, 50, 51 days alone out in Antarctica, I saw three dots on the horizon. And it was just these little dots on the horizon. And at first it's like, oh, are those just more sistrugi out there? Or or is that the South Pole 
Pole Station, and and it was the South Pole Station, and it was just, just you know off on this distance, just barely these three dark spots. And when I saw that, I knew I was almost done. And and that was that is probably the most awesome, wonderful thing I have seen in my whole life is is just these dots on the horizon. And and it was so amazing. I I called. I got out my satellite phone. I was so excited. I I called up my wife on on the phone. I said. I can see it. I can see the South Pole. And she's like, what? What are you saying? And I'm just bawling and, and saying, I can see it. I can see the South Pole. And she couldn't understand me. And then the line dropped. <laughs> and so so um, and so then the rest of the way there, which was pretty much a, a 24 hour deal from there. Well, actually, at, at that point, I was about 13 miles from from the South Pole. So probably you know, half a day's worth of travel from there on. I had to uh, kind of crane my neck to the left a little bit to make sure I didn't look at that and see that because it was so overwhelming to see that there that it would just just was so emotional and overwhelming I just burst down and crying and, and it, it was so awesome <laughs> and, and so and but but then that that last that last little bit I I wanted to go home so bad I wanted this thing to all be done but I'm thinking you know here I am I'm out in the middle of Antarctica and and I'll never be able to be here again and and this is such an awesome thing. I'll never, I can never come back. I'll never, I'll never get this chance again. And so that last little bit, I would, I would stop a lot of times and just, just try to take it all in, and uh, try to figure out the terrain because it's hard to figure out what's up and down and everything with everything just be, being white. And so I try to figure things out, and I just took a little bit extra time at the end just to enjoy seeing what what was here because I knew that that I would never get to that opportunity again. Hmm. Just about wrapping things up here. I got just one or two more questions if you got the time for it. Yeah, um, no problem. What what came after the ride for you? Um so after I got it, it's kind of interesting I I I was able to continue to push all the way till I got to the South Pole. And then um and then once I was basically done and my my brain, I guess, knew that I didn't have to uh, keep pushing at that effort anymore. Um, I kind of went, my body went into shutdown mode. And I I would have a hard time just getting around anywhere. Uh, the day I got back to, uh, to uh, Chile, I, the, um, my hotel room was just like across the hall from where uh, breakfast they had the you know the continental breakfast type thing, and I couldn't walk from my uh, all the way from my hotel or from my room to where the orange juice machine was. I couldn't make it the whole distance without having to stop and take a break because I was just so drained. And uh, and so then after that, I started uh, keeping food with me all night long, and I'd eat, eat. my the first while it was eat as much as I could as often as I could to try to try to get my uh, body to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, I did get to uh, the other thing when I was at the South Pole, they have a research base there and uh, I was able to get a, a, a tour of the base. Um, and so able to walk around inside there. And the interesting thing about that was once I got in and, and take off all the coat and everything to uh, be able to uh, <laughs> stand how warm it was in there. And, and it was 
you know, probably just normal room temperature in there. But it was so, for me, it was so hot and so miserable. And it was probably one of the most miserable things I've ever done is walk, walk through that place. I couldn't wait to get back out to my tent where, where it wasn't so stinking hot. <laughs> and then, and then on my flight back to, uh, flight back to the U S uh, those international flights can often be very cold, you know, up mm-hmm. on there, you get the blankets and stuff. And again, on that flight back, it was so miserable because it was i was just so hot i couldn't stand i mean i was used to 40 below you know i've been out in 40 below for 51 days and so so um you know reasonable temperatures were just very uncomfortable and and made me sick Hmm. looking back on it now to have that distance of five years uh what what have you taken away from uh that experience that you had yeah i think maybe the two things one is is if you have something you really want to do you just go do it. I mean, a lot of times people like, well, I can't do it for this reason or that reason. You know, Antarctica going to doing that was extremely expensive. I didn't have the money to do that. Um, how do you take off that much time away from family and, and work and everything? And it's like, those, those are real issues. But if you really want to do something bad enough, you can do it. And so, so you got to decide, you know, if you've got something really awesome that you want to do, you got to decide to go and do it. And and the other thing is, is that, uh, you know, there, there's that common saying, you can do anything you put your mind to. And, and uh, it's a nice saying, but is that really true? And the answer is, yes, it is. Um, <laughs> I, I, I proved that, that if you want to, I mean, that it, you know, you can do these things if you really put the effort in. I mean, it wasn't easy and you had to, uh, there was a lot of things that had to go in to make it happen. But if you want to do something, you can do it. Daniel, thank you so much. Uh, An incredible story you've got. Yeah, thank you. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. How could you not? If you enjoy the show, please do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review. And most of all, tell someone else you think might like it. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at martin underscore bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.